According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Proverbs. Returning back to the book of Proverbs this morning. Our tenth class in the book of Proverbs. We're still in verse 2. Are we going to take ten classes per verse? That's a lot of classes for 31 chapters of Proverbs. No, I don't expect so. I expect that the first seven verses will probably take a lot. But then if we do our study well, in those first seven verses, we will do ourselves a huge favor for the rest of the book. And so I don't mind front-loading a lot of this and uh, really going into the greater detail here. And then if we do it right, the rest of the book kind of explains itself. <laughs> the neat thing about Proverbs, it doesn't require a ton of explanation. You read it, it means what it says. And it is designed to be self-evident. It's designed to be a simple, evident truth from, from God. And, and if you are of a like-mindedness with God and His wisdom, well then, yeah, it just, of course. Why? Why? Who would think otherwise? All right? And so... Um, it is our blessing to obtain not only the information, but the wisdom that comes through the information. So, again, we are in these early verses, and again, this is where we are today, and uh, for at least a few more classes to work our way through the purpose for the book of Proverbs. Before we get started, let's take time for silent prayer and ask God the Father to humble us, to prepare our hearts for the acceptance of this wisdom. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We rejoice in your faithfulness, Father, to lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again at this time to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in the midst of main point two. If you recall, if you're keeping track, uh, point one is Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. All the background that we did to his biography and David's biography and Bathsheba's biography and everything that went into the writing of the book of Proverbs, including probably the worst reason in the world to ever get married, uh, and that's David and Bathsheba and the, the multiplied grace that uh, they were able to instill wisdom in uh, Solomon and his younger siblings. Under point two, the Proverbs of Solomon and where we presently are is understanding what is a mashal. What is a mashal? If the book is called the Mishle Shalomo, and it is, as you see right there, the Mishle Shalomo, we get it, okay, it's the Mishle of Solomon, but what is? what are the Mishle? What is a mashal? And so we take the time to break it down, a mashal, from the verb mashal, meaning to be like something, to represent something. And it's very common in Proverbs that you are comparing things, that uh, the walk of wisdom is like, or that uh, a wise man is like. Um, being a slug and not planting your crops until winter is like a fool, all right? But being diligent and getting the crops planted and getting the harvest brought in and storing your food away for the winter, that's wisdom. And so there's a lot of comparisons that take place. Look to the ant, O sluggard. What do we learn from ants? Well, what are they like? All right, what are they like? And so we have comparisons, we have likeness. And that's what uh, we have in Proverbs, that's what we have in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who went on a journey, for example. There is likeness, likeness, likeness. A woman who lost a coin, okay? It's like that. Uh, anytime you're talking about likeness, see, you have the core sense of what a proverb is or what a parable is. And uh, shouldn't surprise us because Proverbs and parables are, would both be termed mashal in the Hebrew. In the Greek, we've got paroemia and we've got parabole. We talked about that vocabulary last week as well. A paroemia is a figure of speech, and a parabole is simply a parable or a type, even rendered proverb in Luke 4.23. <clears throat> so what are they? Subpoint B. So what are they? Are they proverbs or are they parables? Should we call these the parables of Solomon? the son of David, king of Israel. Well, it wouldn't make much sense in English to do that because in English, we've really, through usage, we've really 
developed particular understandings of what these words are. And it doesn't do us any good to confuse vocabulary at this point. All right, so through the years in the English language, we've really come to distinguish between proverbs and parables. We've really come to distinguish that parables are stories, that parables are stories that tell, make, a, make a point, communicate a doctrine or make a point. Um, and, and so parables are stories and proverbs are not stories. Proverbs are short, pithy statements. Proverbs are short, pithy statements that do the same thing a parable does, only in a shorter way. <laughs> okay? It makes a point. It gives you something memorable that makes the point of, of doctrine. That's a proverb. Uh, the fact that both proverbs and parables will be called a mashal in Hebrew is interesting, but maybe not that critically important. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so are they proverbs or parables? Are they bywords? Are they taunts? Yes, they are all of them. Uh, a mashal is, a, is an expression, a, a verbal expression that makes a memorable point that makes a memorable point. And the reason why they're so effective is because they stick with you. They stick with you, right? Why is it, of all the things you remember from your childhood, why is it that you remember um, once upon a time there were three little pigs? You know, Why do you remember that these three little pigs each built houses and one built a straw house and one built a, a brick house? I mean, why do we remember these things? Why do we remember Goldilocks and the three bears? Why do we remember these stories? Because that's the nature of stories. They're designed to be memorable. That's the nature of mashal. They're designed to be memorable. Why do I remember lefty-loosey, righty-tighty? Okay? Because when I'm trying to screw something in, a light bulb or a screw or whatever, if I'm going left, that's lefty-loosey. If I'm going right, that's righty-tighty. Why do I remember that? Because it's memorable. Okay? It becomes a proverb or it becomes an an adage or becomes a gnome, as it were. Which is where we ran out of time last week. We are going through the different ways in the Old Testament that the Hebrew Bible uses mashal in ways that are not translated as proverb. Okay, Mashal uh, does have 38 uses in the Old Testament. Uh, they're not all rendered proverb. There's a handful of places where they're rendered other things, such as in nine uses where mashal is translated as discourse. All those messages of oracle messages of Balaam that were called mashalim, they were called mashal. Uh, Balaam took up his mashal and he said, and uh, the different messages in Numbers 23 and Numbers 24, they were all called mashalim. Likewise, Job had a very lengthy mashal that he took up in chapter 27, 28, 29, 30, all that whole stretch of Job was a, was a massive mashal, was a massive memorable statement that Job was uttering in, uh, in the process of, of that defense. So it's rendered as discourse. It's rendered as parable four times. In Psalm 78, 2, mashal is called a parable. In Ezekiel 17, in Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 24, three different places in Ezekiel where the Hebrew mashal is rendered parable. Those are the two we got through, and then we ran out of time. So let's pick it up here. Uh, sometimes in the Hebrew Old Testament, mashal is translated as a byword. A byword. And uh, four times you have in Job 17.6, Psalm 44.14, Psalm 69.11, and Joel 2.17. A byword. What does it mean to become a byword? Job 17.6. Let's take a look at these. A byword. <clears throat> if you become a byword, that's not a good thing. <laughs> it tends to typically be bad. It's a, it's a bad example. For example, if your name is associated with something, then you are a byword. And it could be a person, it could be a place, it could be a... It could be a uh, it's just the reputation that a that a person has, or a thing has, or a church has, or a, a town, for example. Uh, Las Vegas is a byword, right, because of the reputation it has. San Francisco is a byword because of the reputation that it has. More and more, Austin is has a, is a byword because of the reputation that it has. But people have reputations. If I call you a Benedict Arnold, what am I calling you, right? Or if I call you a, 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 a a Don Juan, all right, or I'm calling you a, um, 
whatever. There's, there's associations with those names, okay? If I call you an Albert Einstein, okay, well, maybe that's a complimentary byword. But the, most of the bywords are, are bad. All right, Job 17, 6, where he says, if I speak, my pain, oh, wrong chapter, verse 6. Here he's uh, complaining about what God has done to him. And in the midst of this, um, he says, my spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. He's ready to die. There's no even reason to keep on living. Surely mockers are with me, and my eye gazes on their provocation. Lay down now a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? For you have kept their heart from understanding, therefore you will not exalt them. He who informs against friends for a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children also will languish. But he has made me a byword of the people, and I am one in whom men spit. So now the name of Job is a byword. People talk about, well, you don't want to become a Job. You don't want to turn out like Job. Do you want to be another Job? All right. And the thing is, you can be a byword until somebody else comes along that outdoes you, for example. All right. You know, um, there are folks, again, here I go getting political again, but there are folks who talk about, uh, you know, President Jimmy Carter in a certain way. Right. Well, that may lessen in, in future years. All right. That may, there may be someone, our current president may replace Jimmy Carter and it may become, he may become the new byword, for example. But on the other side of the political spectrum, President Bush is a byword that you did. Well, you're just a, you're just a George Bush. You're just a George Bush, whatever that means. All right. It becomes a byword depending on what your perspective is on things. In Hebrew, that would be a mashal. Okay, a mashal. If you use Benedict Arnold as a, as a representative for a traitor, or use Adolf Hitler as a representative for a, a monster or whatever, you use if you use a person's name as a as a byword, it's a mashal because it's memorable. It sticks. It makes sense. You communicate a whole lot with just a simple byword. Psalm forty four fourteen. And um, it's kind of interesting. We don't totally know the circumstances Israel was going through when uh, this psalm was composed. The sons of Korah composed this. This psalm is called a maskeel. Keep that in mind because we're going to see what a maskeel is this morning. It's going to come up as far as a wisdom term for uh, what it means to have sakal. But uh, in this, the nation is complaining. Uh, you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. You do not go out with our, our, and do not go out with our armies. So here's the complaint. Israel is, is alleging against Yahweh. That Yahweh has rejected Israel now and brought Israel to dishonor. And that Yahweh doesn't go with them uh, in front of their armies any longer like he used to. You cause us to turn back from the adversary. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply. That's the worst part. It's not only have you sold us out, but you got kind of a bargain basement price for it. I mean, you know, it's one thing to be sold out, but at least get a decent price. Come on. You, have, uh, you sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations. So, well, you know, Israel, wow. And all you have to do is just say the name. And compared to all the other nations, that's all that needs to be said. All right? A laughing stock among the peoples. Psalm 69, 11. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 69. It's a psalm of David. It is so messianic. As you see that these are his words, but they're also the words of Christ a thousand years later. You'll notice uh, I have become, verse 8 says, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> All right. And uh, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. 
When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. In other words, no one understood his why he was weeping, why he was fasting, why his soul was in the turmoil that it was in. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. You know, it's interesting. Everybody else, the whole world around you thinks things are going great, and you're just weeping for the, the pagan nation you live in. And nobody else shares your divine viewpoint perspective. They're just, you know, marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking. They're having a days of Noah kind of life, and they don't understand why you're so gloom and doom about, uh, about the world we're in. Come on, things are great. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. <laughs> you know, when, uh, when they're all sitting around the tavern and uh, getting ripped and they're making up new songs, and you become the title of their next song, what does that mean? <laughs> okay? Well, you become a byword. All right? You become a byword. All right. It's almost like a. I think if I was a young man, a single young man nowadays, I'd, I'd, I'd want nothing at all to do with Taylor Swift, right? All her ex-boyfriends become the next song she writes and the next album that comes out. You know, I mean, it only has to happen a dozen times when I start to figure things out. So there's Psalm 69.11, and then finally, Joel 2.17. Joel 2.17. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Get to Amos, you've gone too far. Hmm. All right, Joel 2 is not a happy chapter. Um, (laughs) There's locusts on the way, and this is eschatological related to um, the coming judgment and the tribulation upon Israel. Um. If your nation is under such pending judgment, you need to uh, humble yourself, right? Verse 12 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Yet even now. You say, well, it's too late. No, it's never too late. If you're still on earth, humble yourself to return to the Lord. Rend your heart and not your garments. Don't just do a phony show of repentance. Don't just do a big old display of of uh, repentance. It's got to be your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments and return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. Who knows? You know, he may not relent. It may be too late. You may have crossed the line, but it can't hurt, <laughs> right? Who knows? And, and even if judgment comes, at least you face judgment in fellowship. At least you face dis- national destruction uh, um, in fellowship. is better than out of fellowship. Who knows? whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He very well may. That's his nature. He is forgiving. So uh, then verse 15, blow a trumpet, consecrate a fast. Verse 16, gather the people. Uh, this, This has to be a national endeavor. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. So at all ages, from the oldest to the youngest, Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chambers. In other words, we're going to put all normal family life on hold. We're going to get serious about our national repentance. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. So we want to have, we want to be represented and led by our spiritual leadership. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among Why should they among the peoples say, where is their God? Where is their God? All right? And so different nations have different uh, reputations. That's what happens when you become a byword, right? I mean, when I was a kid, maybe they don't even do this anymore. I don't know. Do they do this anymore? We used to tell Polak jokes when I was a kid because it was fun to pick on Polish people. You know, now I get in Texas, you tell Aggie jokes, and that's the equivalent. I noticed when I moved to Texas, all the Aggie jokes, there were ones I knew already because they were Polak jokes growing up. All right? Uh, but then, you, you know, there's other jokes, you know, and, and, and the humor is based upon whatever, reputation or, or um, prejudice and whatnot. Um, but what is it that the, we used to, you know, Ethiopian jokes, how funny are those, you know, about starving Ethiopians? Or um, what is your nation known for? Okay, and if it becomes known for something bad, uh, that's not good. 
And it's indicative, in fact, that God has given your culture over to decay. And every byword is a mashal. Finally then, a taunt. There are three uses in the Old Testament where mashal is rendered as taunt, including a very well-known prophecy for us in Isaiah 14.4, as well as Micah 2.4 and Habakkuk 2.6. So we start with Isaiah 14.4. And in some of these cases, if you retranslate from byword to parable or discourse, if you, if you try plugging proverb into uh, into those it's not terribly bad the sense still communicates if israel has become a proverb to the nations well okay but it's so negative and it's so um um hostile that maybe in english anyway byword or taunt is a better is a better rendering isaiah 14 4 And this is a prophecy related to the end times. We're told very specifically when, in verse 1, when Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then, so this is second advent, this is millennial reign, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. All right, and the use of Jacob and Israel shows that it's no longer a divided kingdom, it's going to be restored in totality. Remember, Israel uh, has already the northern kingdom swept away as Israel is ministering to the southern, as Isaiah is ministering to the southern kingdom. So the peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male servants and female servants. And the Gentiles will volunteer to be slaves in, in Israel, because being a slave in Israel in proximity to Jesus Christ is an advantage over. Uh, freedom in a Gentile land somewhere else on the planet during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. As male and female servants, and they will take their captors captive, and they will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when Yahweh gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved. Then and only then you will take up this mashal against the king of Babylon and say... And so this prophecy is a song, it's a taunt. It will be realized by Israel in faith and they will pronounce the, uh, the celebration song for the fall of Satan. And uh, everything that we see here with the five I wills, everything we see here with the fall of Satan, yes, it goes back <clears throat> to the angelic pastime, it goes back b- before humans were around, but the song won't be sung until the millennial victory of Jesus Christ. All right? how the oppressor has ceased, how fury has ceased, and all the things that happen, and how everyone's all excited. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. Okay, After what Satan has done in the tribulation, what Antichrist has done in the tribulation, and they break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you, and all Sheol is excited. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. They're rolling out the red carpet. they got the party streamers out. Uh, everything's all excited. Okay, kind of like we're all excited today that Vassal and Carrie are coming to town. We're going to see them at church tonight. All right, We're all excited over the arrival of, of folks that we, we've been waiting to see for a while now. How long has Sheol been waiting to see Hillel ben Shachar? All right, a very long time. And it arouses for you the Raphaim. The spirits of the dead and the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their throne. All the former tyrants and demoniacs and Nephilim and everyone that had a day in the sun, a day of satanic glory under his empowerment, where are they now? And won't they be happy to see him when he arrives? And they will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we, you have become like us. <laughs> Where are we now? Remember, he's going to be bound for a thousand years and then he'll have his final release and he'll have his final incarceration in the lake of fire. But you have become like us. You who vowed, I will be like the Most High God. <laughs> Look what you have become like. Okay, Become like, become like. Remember, that's the idea behind a proverb. It's the idea behind a mashal. So you have become like us. In other words, you are a proverb for us. Anyway, it's translated as a taunt. 
you will take up this mashal against the king of Babylon, this taunt, this discourse, this oracle. How is this really different from Balaam's mashal, from his mashalim in, in the book of Numbers? It is a taunting oracle discourse delivered by Yahweh against his fallen enemy. All right, Micah 2.4 is another example. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah 2, woe to those who scheme iniquity. You say, wow, who pays attention to Micah? Well, there's a lot of doctrine in Micah. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. In other words, they stay up late at night trying to figure out how tomorrow's wickedness is going to work. Plotters and schemers. When morning comes, they do it. (laughs) For it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am planning against this family a calamity. You stayed up all night planning your scheme? Well, God's way ahead of you. He said, I got a plan too. I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks. And you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day, they will take up against you a mashal, a taunt, or a proverb, or a byword, or a discourse, or a parable. On that day, they will take up against you a mashal and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people. He removes it from me. To the apostate, he apportions our fields. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for by lot, for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Anyway, it's rendered taunt there in Micah 2.4. I think it's a valid way to render it. It is a proverb. It is a discourse. But it is a taunting discourse in celebration of the downfall of the wicked. Finally, Habakkuk 2.6. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, 2.6. I think Habakkuk 2, I think Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. Think of the damage that happens in pride. Just your soul is not right. You're doing soul damage. And the longer you walk in pride, the more damage that's done. So get rid of that. Transform that. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like shale. He is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. All right, so is the problem the wine in verse 5? No, it goes back to the arrogance in verse 4. Then verse 6, will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, a mashal against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans. (laughs) Forget about applying this individually, how about applying this nationally? How long can a nation continue to operate under deficit financial circumstances? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done in the land to the town, to all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil for gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. I think uh, Habakkuk would have done real well writing in the book of Proverbs, right? That's what this is about. It's a mashal. A taunt. Point C then. Don't blame Hebrew. It's not, it's not only Hebrew that has all the variety of ways that it could be considered. I don't know if it bothers you that, that Hebrew uses the one term, mashal, to represent so many things, right? To represent a proverb, to represent a parable, to represent a taunt, to represent a byword. It uses the same mashal 
to reflect all of those things. And that bugs us maybe. All right, That bugs us because our language is kind of the opposite of Hebrew. <laughs> our language is the anti-Hebrew. Our language can find a dozen words to all reflect the same thing. And so we have a variety of English expressions like a proverb or a maxim. Okay, A stitch in time saves nine. Is that a proverb or is that a maxim? Or is it an adage? <laughs> okay, might call it something different. Is it an epigram? Who uses epigrams anymore? Well, it used to be more common than it is now. An epigram. An aphorism. These are all synonyms. They're all words for a proverb. Okay? A short, pithy statement that communicates a truth. An adage. It's a short, pithy statement that communicates a truth. A byword. A saying. A dictum. A truism. Or a gnome. And there's probably more than that. Those are just the ones I found in my Merriam-Webster's Dictionary and Thesaurus. There's probably more than that. Idioms, expressions, figures of speech. If they are short, if they are memorable, if they make a point, then it qualifies as an adage. It qualifies as a proverb or a, or a uh, dictum or a truism. It's gotta, it, it can't just say nothing. It's got to say something. It's got to make a point. Okay? And that's, uh, that's what we come down to. Proverbs make a point. And the sooner we learn that, the, the more we're going to be able to relax. Okay? Proverbs make a point. And if you try to press that point too far, you damage the purpose of a proverb. Proverbs make a point, and they make a general point. They make a general point under normal circumstances. All right? People try to twist them and, and push them too far. They try to exceed what is written by forcing a proverb to go beyond what a proverb is designed to do. To try to hold a proverb to the status as a promise. See? Such as train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. That There is a point being made in that proverb. And it is a general truth under normal circumstances. All other conditions being equal. That is a truth. Okay? But then there are other considerations as well. Other truths that must also be equally true, such as you reap what you sow. All right? Such as um, uh, circumstances where a child does not return to the truth. When does that happen? Okay? Well, it happens. How does it happen? Well, it does happen. And why? And well, we've got other verses that address that. No proverb is designed to address every conceivable scenario. That's not what a proverb is designed to do. Okay? And we'll see that as we work our way through time and time and time again. By the 200th time you've seen it, it should, uh, the point should be pounded home pretty, pretty clearly. <laughs> All right. Point three. Solomon begins by explaining what the book of Proverbs will do and how to get started. Solomon begins by saying, explaining what the book of Proverbs will do. This is what you can expect. This is what we can expect as a church. By the time we complete our Proverbs series, Lord willing, rapture pending. You know, I think of the great benefit this flock has now because of a completed Life of Christ series, a completed Life of Christ notebook, a completed Life of Christ uh, library of audio messages. This, this, this flock is equipped in amazing, powerful ways with uh, the resources now available in that completed Life of Christ series. Likewise, there will be an asset to this flock with a completed Proverbs series. And we have in the Word of God what Proverbs will do for you. This is what Proverbs does. So the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction for objects of that instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the naive. To give, or to the youth, knowledge and discretion. We have a parenthetical statement in verse 5 that, that comes out of verse 4. 
more purposes in verse 6. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Right, everywhere we have that little preposition to is describing the purpose of the book. It's describing what Proverbs will do. He says what studying Proverbs will equip you to do. And I'll get a little bit uh, verbose as we break down the points of study on this, item by item by item. But this is what studying the book of Proverbs does for you. Not just studying it. Studying it, living it, digesting it, processing it, absorbing it into your way of thinking. That's what Proverbs will do to you. Okay. And how to get started. Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of knowledge. It's one of our great in the beginning passages, right? We don't think of it that way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or in the beginning was the word. We've got beginning passages in the Bible in different ways. I think we need to add this one to the list of our in the beginning passages. Here's the beginning of knowledge, and it comes down to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of instruction, it's the beginning of understanding, it's the beginning of the entire cycle of what happens when we take in the Word of God and we digest it, we approbate it, we adopt it into our way of thinking. You've got to start with the fear of the Lord. got to start with that. Okay, so, in the first one of these, what are we dealing with? Sub-point A now. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to know wisdom and disciplined instruction. Studying Proverbs. If you want to take that phrase and, and shove it in front of each one of these little twos. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to. Okay? Studying Proverbs equips the reader to know wisdom and instruction. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to discern the sayings of understanding. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to receive instruction in wise behavior. That's the purpose for this book. Studying this book, digesting this book, equips the reader to do all these things. And we've already given you the vocabulary for this in previous classes. The vocabulary for Chachma, the vocabulary for Musar. I'm not going to repeat all those. Uh, if you have them in your... we made. Uh, did we make handouts of this, Dan? Do you remember? I think we made handouts for this. Okay. Um, so when we did the introduction to the book, uh, under point eight, you've got all the vocabulary you need for verses two through seven, at least with respect to the wisdom, instruction, prudence, Knowledge, discretion, and understanding. All right, the thinking uh, expressions of this uh, of this introduction. So you have chachma, you have musar. Studying proverbs equips the reader to know wisdom and disciplined instruction. We want to know it. We want to know it intimately. We want to know it in all of the dimensions that knowing is used in the Old Testament. Not just academically knowing, but knowing personally, knowing intimately, knowing wisdom and instruction on an intimate basis. Knowing it for what it is so that you can embrace it, and knowing it for what it's not so you can reject it. Okay? We'll talk about that as well. The, uh, the different components to that. Understand, of course, that this um, musar, this instruction, is the disciplined instruction, like the paideia of the New Testament. It is the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is the disciplined instruction of a parent who not only provides information, but provides moral correction to the child that requires that discipline. Okay, you've probably noticed children have sin natures and they require disciplined instruction to whereby they are trained up in that disciplined instruction. I like the rendering of disciplined instruction. I think uh, some, I think Holman uses moral instruction or some of the, some of the uh, commentaries uh, that I read use moral instruction for Musa. I think it's moral misses the mark. It's disciplined instruction, disciplined instruction. 
Of course, this wisdom and discipline instruction is absolutely despised by the foolishness of this world. That's why we need to saturate ourselves with truth. If we're not transformed by the Word of God, we're going to be conformed to this age. And we know that. So studying Proverbs equips the reader to know wisdom and discipline instruction despised by the foolishness of this world. It's not only uh, verse 2 here that introduces wisdom and instruction. The, the, the poem here opens with wisdom and instruction in verse 2. Do you see it? And then it closes with wisdom and instruction in verse 7. Do you see that? Okay. You got the wisdom and instruction that opens verse 2. And you got the wisdom and instruction that closes verse 7. Where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay? And so it forms a nice, um, a nice package. It forms a nice uh, poem, as it were. The poetry of these verses is remarkable as it opens and as it closes with the, with the chachma and the musar, the wisdom and the instruction. Think of it as the bread of your sandwich as uh, wisdom and instruction, and then in between, the meat of that sandwich is everything here in, in uh, verses 2 through 6. Of course, it's despised by the foolishness of this world. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right? And so what the book of Proverbs does for us, as we embrace it, as we saturate our thinking with it, understand that that world around us, those fools that there's no shortage of, okay, um, the fools in your life are going to take issue. They're going to um, not appreciate your dedication to this wisdom. They're going to mock you for it. They're going to be critical of you for it. They're going to have a way of thinking that's going to be at odds with your way of thinking. So just get used to it. Get ready for it. And uh, clearly this is likewise the testimony of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1 and James 3. No shocker there. So it becomes a test. Are you willing to pursue what everybody else thinks is a waste of time? Are you going to dedicate your life to what everybody around you says is ridiculous? It's foolishness. Well, that's what we're called upon to do. And the fear of the Lord will impel us to do that. Do we fear the Lord or do we fear the, the world? Are we, are, we, are we slaves to the approbation of, of those fools that we're surrounded by? If we are, then we join them. We become the fool. We join with all those other fools that are out there. All right, 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We couldn't live without it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they think it's stupid, but man, I need it. I need it day by day. I need it moment by moment. I would be a train wreck without it. As it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. They have a cleverness, but it's not God's cleverness. They have a wisdom. It's not God's wisdom. And in that craftiness, they will be caught. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this I own? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the cosmos? The wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased, well pleased. This is his sovereignty at work. God's sovereignty is what he achieves when he achieves his good pleasure. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. To save those who believe. Okay? It goes on all the way down to verse 25 in this. Uh, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews' stumbling block, to Gentiles' foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the foolishness of this world, the foolishness of this age, will we'll view our uh, acceptance of Proverbs as foolishness, right? We read the Scriptures, and... and Think about it. I mean, it's practical. It, it, it is shaping every facet of our, of our public life. It's, it, it's, it's reflected in the decay of our culture, right? When Proverbs tells us to, uh, if you spare the rod, what's the consequences to the child? 
But what does our culture say about the rod? What does culture say about the disciplining of children? Well, they've got their experts and their child psychology experts and their models of of child raising where, of course, it takes a village and all the rest is they're raising up these these monsters. They're raising up these um, amoral, cosmos-minded, hairless apes. Okay? That's That's what they think they are. They're just, you know, they're just hairless apes. They've evolved. And, and, and really, they've redefined any kind of morality. It's not grounded in an unchangeable standard of a holy, righteous God. It's just the relative morality of an evolving culture and society. Hmm. No wonder they're adrift without an anchor. Okay? James 3. We see pretty vividly what this wisdom is like. James 3.13, Who among you is wise and understanding? See, James is the New Testament book of Proverbs. It is wisdom literature for the body of Christ and the church. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. See, the, um, the instruction in wisdom will lead to a practical exhibit of it. It will lead, uh, wise thinking leads to wise living. Wise living is what we're aiming for, but it starts with the wise thinking. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy, okay, you didn't get that from God's wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Don't credit God's wisdom for that. Because the practical living that you're living out is not God's wisdom, it's the world's wisdom. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. There's two sources of wisdom in this universe. Make very clear which is which. Wisdom will, will equip you to do that. Studying Proverbs equips you to do that. So this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic Earthly, natural, demonic. So when you start to look at a, at a way of thinking, you start to look at a philosophy, you start to look at a, at, a, at a worldview, it should be pretty simple. Is this God's worldview or is this Satan's worldview? Is it earthly, natural, demonic? Bingo. <laughs> I know where that's coming from. It's not coming from God. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. Disorder and every evil thing. Order versus disorder. Peace or chaos. Is it tossed about by every wind of doctrine? Is it in turmoil? <laughs> Who was that character in Peanuts, that, the Charlie Brown buddy that um, everywhere it was just pig pen. Everywhere he walked, it was just, you know, dust and dirt and just... The, 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 the cartoonist, I imagine, had a fun time drawing that, right? Because every time Pigpen came around, it was just this dust and dirt. and That's, that's, that's the, the image in my mind as I think about satanic chaos, turmoil and chaos. And there are some people that are not stable. They're not grounded by the Word of God. And their whole life is chaos, all right? It's the chaos that just bubbles all around them everywhere they go, and it affects the people near them. Their marriages, their families, their wives, their church. I mean, it's just their, their proximity to chaos. Not a good thing. Okay? And the pastoral epistles warn us about that. The instability. You've got to stop it. It'll spread like gangrene. You've got to root it out. You've got to stop it. It's satanic wisdom. It's not God's wisdom. There should be stability in the soul by virtue of the Word of God transforming thinking. And if that stability is not observable, if chaos and, and uh, it's like the whole world was tohu wabohu and the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep. And, and I'm looking at certain people and they should have stability and they've got tohu wabohu in their soul. All right. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, 
what we're going to glean as we study the book of Proverbs. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable. Ah, I love that. Okay? means logical, compatible with thinking, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. So we're told, let love be without hypocrisy. Cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, so the wisdom that we're going to embrace, the wisdom that's going to transform our thinking, the wisdom that will be the product of studying the book of Proverbs, it is totally at odds with that alternative, with that counterfeit, with the wisdom of this world that's foolishness before God. And the foolishness of this world, who's probably wiser than anything in this world, is a fool before God and will will be in conflict. We will be in conflict, either you know, active or passive or some form of it. So just get ready. Just get ready. Proverbs are going to do that for you. Secondly, studying Proverbs equips the reader to discern the sayings of discernment. To discern the sayings of discernment. It's a bit of a play on words here because there's bean and binah that are both used in this phrase. To bean the binah. So to receive instruction and wise behavior. Nope, I'm not there yet. I'm sorry, verse 2 still. To know wisdom and instruction. To know it. Right? To know it. And you ought to know it. You ought to know wisdom. And you ought to know what kind of wisdom it is. That's easy enough. Is it God's wisdom or the world's wisdom? To know uh, instruction or disciplined instruction. You know disciplined instruction and you know the lack of disciplined instruction. Proverbs will teach you how to, how to know those things. Also, Proverbs will tell you how to discern. I love discernment. Bane and ubane. Right? Bane and ubane. Some of the earliest Hebrew vocabulary. Well, maybe not the earliest, but you, you get bane and ubane pretty early. Right? Between this and that. Comparing this and that. The difference between this and that. Bane and ubane. Um... If something is between something, you're making discernment. You're, you're choosing between two options. You want to do this the easy way or the hard way? You want to go the path of wisdom or the path of folly? Are you going to be hardworking or are you going to be a sluggard? Are you going to be sober-minded or are you going to be a drunkard? It becomes one or the other. It's a bane and ubane distinction. Okay? You say, well, that seems awfully absolute. That seems awfully black and white. That seems awfully either or. A lot of the Word of God is. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. You're either wise or a fool. Whose wisdom are you pursuing? There's the wisdom from above. There's the wisdom from below. In these realms of of doctrine, we need to understand the duality for what it is. Yes, it's an absolute issue. It is an either or. And in these realms of study, we need to identify that. And bane and ubane, to bane the sayings of binah. To bane the sayings of binah. And you're going to be equipped to do that in the book of Proverbs. You know, discernment is so critical. And, and, and it's legitimate. It's, it's, we're commanded to discern. We're to judge with righteous judgment, we're told. We're to judge with his standard of judgment. And and the whole thing is, and and I think it's intentional, we're getting hammered day after day after day after day to not be judgmental. And somehow if you're judgmental, well then you're hateful. (laughs) Okay? Judge not lest you be judged. And it's the only verse they know practically, but they sure hit you with it like it's a sledgehammer. And like, well, who are you to judge? I'll tell you who I am. I'm a son of God the Father by faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm under commandment to be discerning. And I do judge. I judge with righteous judgment. And I hold myself to the same standard by which I judge with that righteous judgment. And I'm taking the beam out of my eye so I can take the speck out of your eye. All right? You really want to discuss Matthew 7? 
<laughs> I'd love to discuss Matthew 7, but first I'm going to discuss some other passages because I think you need eternal life. All right, when I'm talking to an unbeliever and they say, well, you're just so judgmental. I'm supposed to be judgmental. I'm supposed to be discerning. But they've got this mythology that, oh, everything's equal. Everything's multiculturalism. Every culture is of equal value and equal worth. And really? Including those head chopper offers, right? Well, I'm going to celebrate that. I think I need to be on guard against that. I think I need to have discernment with the, you know, the young men that are interested in my daughter. I better have discernment there too. Who should she be dating? Who should she not be dating? Should we have discernment? Should we not have discernment? Who do I associate with? Who do I not associate with? We're supposed to have a discernment. Proverbs will equip us to bean the right binah. All right? To bean the sayings of binah. Proverbs will do that for us. See, careful discernment is necessary because there is much in life that has the appearance of wisdom and it's not. It is just the opposite. We've got to know if it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, it looks like a sheep. Yeah, but those sharp teeth seem to hurt. Okay? We need to have careful discernment because there is much in life that has the appearance of wisdom. And I could have added more to this. Colossians 2.23, how about there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Well, if it seemed like a good idea, yeah, you need, you need to bean the sayings of Bina. You need to have the appropriate discernment here. Colossians 2 and verse 23 things which have the appearance of religion. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. What could be wrong with that? Seems okay. All right. They seem like a nice person. Yeah, they don't go to my church, but yeah, they seem decent. They seem moral. They have a code they, they follow uh, whatever, you know. They're uh, yeah. They they follow. They're on a path with morality. They they they. They're moral people. They're good guys. They're nice. They they uh, they seem to be following a higher power of whatever invention, right? They they they're they're on some twelve step thing. Wait a minute. What source of wisdom are they employing? What is it that's shaping their thinking? Is it the living and abiding Word of God? Or is it the counterfeit? Because if it has the appearance of wisdom and is not wisdom, what is it? It's the other kind of wisdom. It's, the, it's from below. Notice, they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. See, God's wisdom will protect you from carnality you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. If you employ God's wisdom, you will not walk by means of the flesh. But using these phony alternatives has no value against carnality. Using these phony alternatives is carnality because you're grieving, quenching, and resisting the Holy Spirit as you embrace the counterfeit wisdom. Studying Proverbs will equip you to do this. Thirdly, We'll pick up with next week. Studying Proverbs gets very practical. Studying Proverbs equips the reader to accept the discipline instruction. It's the same Musar again. It's the Musar we had in verse 2. But the Musar is in these different categories of life. Insightful living or successful living. Righteousness, justice, and uprightness. There are four practical expressions of Musar in your life. And see, some people want to jump right to these things. They want to jump right to the, the practical, just jump right to the how-to. You know, I want, I want to raise my child so when he's an adult, he's uh, successful. Okay? Well, don't put the cart before the horse. What will produce that successful living? What will produce the righteousness? What will produce the justice? What will produce the uprightness of living? Do we want the next generation to be a fine, moral, upstanding generation? Okay. Well, there's ways to do that. Proverbs will do that. Proverbs will do that God's way. That's where we'll pick up next week.
Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for what your word does to us, Father. We readily, we want it to do it to us. We want to be transformed. We want to be molded. We want to be conformed to the image of your Son. Father, we don't want to be what we have already been. Father, we, uh, we want to grow. We want to, we want to reach what you have for us before you call us home. And thank you, Father, that Proverbs, wisdom literature, is, uh, is very uh, unique amongst all the other genres of Scripture. Of course, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, but this literature in particular, in particular, puts us on this course and does amazing things. So, Father, we're looking forward to seeing what your Word does, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.